All right, welcome back to Last Week Chopped Up. I'm here actually with my boy Nathan, who you know from the Special Haters Ball edition. Uh, Jeremy couldn't make it this week, so <laughs> hate, we just hate, 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 hate. hate. <laughs> we'll see if the balance works because you know um, my wife is uh, was saying that she liked how you kind of brought a component where me and Jeremy are agreeing with each other too much and you bring a component in. So we'll, we'll see if we're casting for controversy. In fact, she has an alternative name suggestion for the podcast, which I have not shared with you, which we use Uh-oh. internally in my house, which is called <laughs> the man yard. So. <laughs> the man yard. All right. I, I, I could go with that. I can go with that. I'm not going to hate on that one yet. <laughs> right. I think she, she kind of, you know, brought it up with a little bit of, you know, obviously humor in the mix. But I'm right. thinking, like, that sounds just dumb enough to work. You know, like, <laughs> man yard, that sounds like man a corporation. <laughs> like, so I told her, that's like I Disney, like it. you know, <laughs> like man yard. Yeah, that's the big brand. That's the that's the umbrella organization that we're all going to be that's owned right. by at some point. That's right. <laughs> Is last week chopped up, brought for you, brought to you by Man Yard Enterprises, a, divi- yes. a, a man yard corporation. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and we got we got multiple jurisdictions to to traverse so that's right we, you know we're gonna need a bunch of holding companies that's that, <laughs> it, that, that's exactly right we gotta we gotta plan for success you know we gotta plan yeah. we gotta plan for success so what's up what's up you're out there now in houston what's up what's how that's right yeah. in screwville okay we got the screwed up click okay. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why i asked well you have that in your closet yeah. at home your parents oh for house. sure <laughs> For sure, I had to rep. I had to rep when I'm I'm back home in H Town. So I, you do yeah. have like the most Houston gear of anyone I know by like such a long margin. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was younger, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, get me uh, a screwed up click shirt." And this is back when they were just selling them out in like sure. Acres Homes yeah, and stuff yeah, like that, yeah. where you you yeah. can't get them like on Etsy or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. So uh, they didn't have dropship back then. So uh, I made a, a, you know, a pit stop out in the real Acres Homes. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a cool, cool look because that's definitely a part of Houston. You know, we, we grew up in Houston, but there's parts of Houston you don't really, no. you don't really hang out in. No. So, so you went over there and picked but up? Yeah, I got what, what were they costing? Up, what, were they, what were they charging back then? Ba- okay, so back then... Back then, they didn't want me. No, <laughs> putting some Mike Jones on there. But uh, I think it was like uh, ten dollars. It yeah, was pretty bad. cheap, man. Like bad. in like two thousand and one, you know, yeah. go out to Acres Home, ten bucks, bad. and you get like a a big. It, back then, you know, it was the big oversized ones. So I had like <laughs> I had an oversized white thing with like a bunch of of purple drink like dripping all over the shirt so I, it was good i remember once like <laughs> my mom bought me which is really nice for a unc a basketball jersey and you know okay. they, they say the size on it very prominently and right. it was like tyler Hansborough extra small and i actually wore it a lot to box and work right. out and stuff but she's like oh, i thought right. you, you know for athletics you don't want something baggy i'm like that is very <laughs> logical but like you also wear these to like I mean, this thing is like skin tight. This is like a workout right. gear, so it's like I can't wear this to the game because it 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 wouldn't fit over a t-shirt, and I'm not trying to no. 
You know, it's not really where I'm bringing to the game. This, you know? You're not trying to bring the gun show out. Not for to the, the game. game. Not to <laughs> not the student section. No, but that's right. I, I still that's right. Where that is, but I still have it. But yeah, okay. And did you Tyler ever... Hansbrough. God, man, that guy. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's 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 all. That's I mean, I know you're a UNC guy, and he he took you places, but. That's a hard rep, man. That's a hard rep. I don't know. I don't know if I could rep Tyler. I mean, well, you have to, like you said, this is before we no, played. Not to diss your mom. Obviously, yeah. she's looking out. It's before out. we played pro out. ball. But in fairness to her, I don't even think she, like, knew who which player it was. She just went to the student store and bought the first jersey she saw. You know, like, and gotcha. this is his college gotcha. days, right? But, no, no most yeah. definitely, when a guy in college is known for his hustle, that doesn't project well to the NBA. <laughs> like, hustle doesn't project project particularly well i would say uh it's like oh he's no. psycho t he plays real hard it's like there are guys that play real hard and are real much bigger that will be an issue I think, yes that, yeah i think lebron played hard when he came in you know he plays pretty hard yeah, I, <laughs> that's not uh, gonna that's not, that's not a differentiation that's not gonna change level. things no it's the they're, yeah they're not there because they're because they're talented but not working hard they're 100 percent of them are working hard oh and and, and probably working harder than we know i think and, and that, I, you know, I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, even even my biggest hate, you know, uh, comes at at Harden, and you can tell he's 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 working hard at the dinner table too. But he is definitely <laughs> he is definitely working hard on like putting into the game the things yeah, that are required for him to dominate. Yeah. to dominate doing what he's doing. So it's yeah, like so, all of these players. So you know what, we, my listen, I had a conversation about this because you heard the last the podcast yeah. where you were on. Hating, yeah. on, hating on James Harden. And then yes. she Googled it, and she looked at some of the pictures you had sent via WhatsApp, some bad images, and I was like, right. do not believe this. Go watch a video of him just in warm-ups, whatever. He is not overweight. Like, it, he is absolutely not overweight. That is ridiculous. I will, I will, okay, I'll give you this. The dude has, like, the one of the weirdest photogenic bodies out there in terms of he can look, like, 20 pounds overweight, and then you just turn sideways, and he looks like... You know, he's an optical illusion, but he's not yes. overweight. I yeah, agree. Yeah, there yeah, are yeah. pictures of him that it looks bad, but you know dang well <laughs> he's a bit of a thicker dude, but he's not overweight. He's in good shape. He's not overweight. Come on. I don't know. There, there's definitely there's definitely a point in when he came back to the Rockets to try to get traded where he was overweight. There that may dude have been was a overweight. point, but that point is not today. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like he ever got back to that form prior to him trying to get out of Houston. All right. Well, you know? I will challenge the last week. Chuck, go look at a video, not a picture. I agree. A picture. I mean, you watch, watch him run those stairs after he had like some victory with the, with the, you know, with Embiid. And he's like looking like he's doing all this work. I don't know. I, I feel like the other factor is the guy has always been sort of, he's, he's always been like a gym rat guy. Yeah, you know, I yeah, do yeah. think he's strong. Yeah. He's he super strong. strong. Yeah, he's super strong. Um, but at a certain point, you know, once you start ticking past 30 and your diet doesn't change and you still put in the work, you know, it's it's eventually that that calculus doesn't work out for you. That balance doesn't work out. He's a bigger he's he's put he's carrying more weight than he was when he came out of Arizona State. But no so is everybody. I I agree. But let me let's on the topic of hate. How yes. do you feel about how much hate Russell Westbrook has gotten? Because I think we're all they're professional athletes making millions of dollars a year, but he's come out and said like he can't even bring his kids. Damn near to the 50, game. 50, 50 million almost. Okay, <laughs> but do you, how do you feel about? Uh, obviously, he's had a bit of a rough go of it, and I've read that he's having statistically 
one of the worst NBA seasons ever in terms of the negative value he is impacting on his team. So it, it is clear that he is a negative influence, at least the advanced metrics say it. And I think the eye test would say that. But do you think it's like when he goes into opposing arenas, is it appropriate that he's catching this much salt just every game? Is that something you're here for? Or is that like, well, there's a line? And if so, where's the line? I think... I, I I think the line is like the the stuff you talking about with death threats or him yeah, people like yeah. antagonizing his family like that's insanely yeah. out of yeah. out of bounds. But yeah. like calling him Westbrick, how is that at all? No, that's like that's fine. Yeah. Controversial whatsoever. Like yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. guy <laughs> cannot be talking about that as like that's where I think he he brings it on himself because it's like you are a professional you're getting paid millions of dollars. And part of the experience is that you get applauded when you do great things. You, you hear boos when you're not doing the right stuff. And especially if you're in an opposing arena, like, look at Trey. Look at yeah. Ice Trey. The yeah. guy loves it, right? Yeah. He goes to New York. He's like, come on, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Yeah. And I'm sure they're saying all types of ridiculous stuff to him. Yeah. But there's a certain way in which a player embraces the yeah, hate the, yeah. to become the villain yeah. and puts a yeah. dagger in your heart. I think the hard part for him is he can't produce. Like you said, he's like all-time bad efficiency when yeah. it comes to his usage. Yeah. Like he still has this insane usage and he like sh his shooting percentage is insanely bad. Yeah. I mean, one of the worst I think of all time. Well, it's like when, when you, you when you do those it is. combinations. He is. Well, I mean, there's a certain point with these guys, I mean, Bradley Beal, I don't know where he is on the spectrum right now, but if you're a high usage guy, the difference between you being a really big asset and a big negative is six percentage points or so of, or so of field goal efficiency, right? NBA is a very competitive market. And so right. it you see these guys go from being, it's like someone at work, if they're high energy, if they're high energy and having collaborative good ideas, they're incredibly valuable. If they're high energy and having not so good ideas or being combative with people, they're incredibly negative, right? And I feel like these high usage guys, we're seeing you can actually go from being a top 20 player in the league to a bottom 20 player in the league in one year or two years. And so I don't know how you feel about it. I think these advanced analytics have exposed the this kind of player in a, in, in a, in a really meaningful way. I mean, we've seen this tape. Yeah. I look at Allen Iverson. Yeah. The last two years in the league, he just went from, you know, all-time usage yeah. to basically he can't you can't play him. You, no. you, know, you can't, you can't put him on the court because he's only going to play yeah. a certain way. Right? right. He needs to take the shots. He needs to have the ball in his hands. He's going to turn the ball over a bunch, shoot a horrible percentage, and play no D. Like, and he was out of the league in two years. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. was, you know, took, took a team on his back to the finals, which Russ has never done. No. And he was out of the league in two years. One, yeah. I mean, you look at other players that sort of found a way to lengthen their careers and it takes really humbling yourself yeah. like you said yeah. on the margin everything counts so much yeah. so if you realize oh i'm taking a marginal decrease in my efficiency i need to like really really figure out what to do differently you look at a person like carmelo who was with yes. the rockets he was out of the league yeah yeah they went for a year yeah, yeah and uh he came back to the league and completely took on a new role, decided I'm not going to be a high-usage player. I'm going to be a spot-up shooter for three. Yeah. He has a green light to do it, and he's, he's playing in that role yeah. and extending his career 
as a Hall of Famer. But I don't see Russ ever changing his mindset. Like, he's, he's wired that way. He no. thinks he's the man. And uh, he thinks that, you know, the, like the criticism. The funniest part is, like, you would think that um, he has Melo on his team, right? He has <laughs> a guy yeah. Who, yeah. who was like, yeah. I remember in OKC when the guy asked him, hey, would you come off the bench? And remember that he's like, who? Who, me? Yeah. And then he's like, hey, hey, come over here. Come over here. Paul George, come over here. This guy's asking me yeah. if I'm going to come off the bench. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Laughing, laughing in his face. Yeah. And literally that season, he had to come off the bench. So, like, this is a, this is the thing where a guy can go from the top yeah. to having to drastically change the role. And some people can do it. I don't see Russ doing that. No, no. And even if he tried, like, what, what is he going to do? Well, uh, some people have like, the skills... I think to adapt, it takes the skills and the will. I think maybe both are lacking here. Look at a guy like Stefan Marbury. I think he actually had right. the will. Um, right. But I don't think he had the skills. And then he's like, well, I'll just go play in China and score 50 points a game and they'll put a statue up for me. And, and, and he's loving right. it and sell a bunch of shoes, which is great. He sells his shoes for $20. So love him. But I don't, I think he probably might have had the will, but he didn't have the skills. I think Russ has neither the will nor the skills, but I think, like you said, there are other guys that basically if you're big and you can shoot, you can play in the NBA. You know, So like yeah. Melo can play in the NBA. Russ is big, but he can't shoot. Mm-hmm. So can't that's shoot. tough. Games pre- pre- predominantly about his athleticism. Yeah. And you can see increasingly when he tries to get to the rim. He's an attacker, which has been great for, for his team especially because a lot of – a lot of teams don't have a guy who's going to get to the rim. Unfortunately, the Lakers have that guy in LeBron. Yeah. So it's a redundant guy in Russ, and he's not finishing at the rim because his athleticism or whatever doesn't allow him to be able to take the contact, finish at the rim anymore because he used to be like, like you said, on the margin. He used to be like probably one or two inches closer to the rim, yeah. and that makes that shot percentage go up tremendously. Yeah. Whereas if you're trying to go full speed at the rim and you had to let go of the ball three inches further away, the odds are it's going to miss a lot more. Yeah. I think what must be so hard for these guys is, I don't know if you've ever been in a context in like a recreational sports environment where a pro athlete was there from the sport they played. So like David Isle, who's a friend of, a good friend of ours, played baseball through adulthood. And he told me a story of a, a relief pitcher, used to be a major league relief pitcher. Uh, mm-hmm. coming and playing. They wouldn't let him pitch because obviously he would just dominate. The guy's like 35, but he would hit. Sure. And he said he'd hit a home run like one out of two times. He was a relief right. pitcher, but he <laughs> he was just, you know, he probably played college ball or whatever. Right. He was like right. on another planet doing outside of his core skill set. He was on another planet. We played, I played flag football in San Francisco. There was a guy that played D1 football as like a receiver, not on a star, not a star player, not on a good, right. not on a big team. He was like literally untouchable. Like people had trouble literally touching this man, like on the right. field, you know? So there's so yeah. much better than mere mortals that I think it must be really hard to accept that when you get, but, but ultimately if you looked at skill distribution, one inch, two inches, it's a super competitive market. And it's, I think it must be so psychologically difficult to accept because compa- like Stefan Marbury, I'm sure the Chinese Basketball League, okay, it's not as competitive as the NBA, but these guys aren't, they could beat a ton of teams, college teams, I'm sure, honestly, not maybe not the top teams, but like these guys are so much better than everybody else that it must be just hard psychologically to come to grips with that. So I can understand not having the will because you've just never developed this muscle, you know? 
No, and and it's part, it's sort of like you live by the die, uh, sword, die by the sword, because you have to have this like insane amount of confidence to say you're going to be the best player, you know, and oh, yeah. to get in to get into the league. Um, yeah. So he needed that to get to where he is. He needed that to get to, and I mean, he's a MVP, right? Yeah. That you can't take that away from him. But at this stage in his career, I I don't see him. Ha- I I honestly will predict that. At the end of his con- next contract, I don't think anyone would even give him the minimum to no, play. No, I don't. Know. He'll be in the mellow situation, but won't be able to adapt. And, and I, yeah. I agree with you. Well, let's talk tech. Um, we've talked about on on here. We've talked about distributed autonomous organizations. We've talked about NFTs. We've talked about crypto. You brought up a topic on ApeCoin, which is some kind of confluence of all three, as far as I can tell. So what's I've yeah. seen these images online. I don't really know what it is. Like, fill me in here. What's going on with ApeCoin? Okay, so uh, I think one of the most recognizable um, NFTs out there is the the Bored Ape yeah. Yacht Club. Yeah. So it's you know it's this this uh, very recognizable look of a, an ape who sort of has a bored face on, but yeah. they they um, have different uh, you know costumes or other other looks on them that that the uh, nft creator who who made a limited batch of these apes decided well well, there's this finite number of them and they're all going to have a certain amount of uh decoration and and variability and then according to that you know they started becoming like a collectible right nfts are essentially collectibles like it's yeah, not that different than be- a weird form of collectible, but yes, a weird form of collectibles in that you don't actually own the picture, no. right? That's that's the hard part no. to get wrap your mind around. But you own the right to say that you own the picture, yeah, uh, by pointing to a uh, address on a blockchain yeah. that says I, I have the keys to this address that points to that picture. That's right. Which, that's right. which is a very meta concept, but I don't think that that's that hard to wrap your mind around i think the hard part to wrap your mind around is like why are those particular collectibles valuable yeah. and why would they maintain any value over time because the scarcity is really artificial right yes. like we've gone we we've gone full circle where we're saying we have a digital system where scarcity is gone because everything's bits and you can just copy anything at any time when you have the when you have the JPEG, yeah. So why are, why are we making this thing up that we want artificial scarcity? Well, that's so. Well, we are to make a market to make money. That people are doing this for the reason of economics. But so okay, let's talk about. <laughs> you said you own, you own, you own, you own a digital <laughs> signature. You own sort of the fact that you had to say you own three different times and not be able to say what it is you own. Is probably a bad sign. <laughs> well, exactly. Like, there's scarcity of this. There's there's an ownership of like let's say a digital certificate that can be validated that you own it and that points to a URL or some way of rendering a digital asset. You don't own the rendering. You own the you own the the underlying authentic authentication of the rendering or something like this. Let's um, as a metaphor. So sure, you have to care about owning that. But that I get. I sort of get because. People have cared about owning about the, the real Picassos. Painting. Yeah, yeah the, the real Picasso, Picasso versus yeah. like they can't tell Any the reference. difference between a fake and the real, but they care about the real. 
Uh, it's a little different, but it's the right. same fundamental idea. There's a, but then to your point, Picasso gone, Picasso only painted so many paintings. So like scarcity fully determined here, like when you buy, you have this huge counterparty risk that they can just print more. And that seems like really, now you could talk about smart contracts and limiting and reputation. So like for top shot for MBA, maybe they wouldn't do this, but ultimately that feels like a really big risk. But the other side, the other side of it is, is it again, is there really a deep market here? Is it really not a, like, is it a, if it's a fad, I mean, at these prices, at these prices, you have to recognize that there's a huge component of this where people have uh, a lot of Bitcoin or crypto and they need to figure out a way to funnel that out of uh, a taxable event, right? Where they need, they need a way to purchase assets that when they liquidate them are no longer going to be taxed. Which is fine. I think, which is the fine art market also, by the way, which is a fine art market. Yeah. So when you look at like, the prices associated with crypto, uh, with um, yeah, with the CryptoPunks, which is another famous NFT um, collectible collection, and these bored apes, like they're so expensive that the only owners of these these artwork, these pieces of art, are really people who had tremendous amounts of yeah. crypto that they need to figure out how to move outside of just pure crypto or they're just and, paying themselves right i mean or they're trying to pump and dump on a on a on an asset right because you yes you buy right. your own you buy your own it's like if you had a house and bought it six times from yourself and the purchase history indicated demand that's also happening right i mean that is happening i think that it's a little harder to do that because um you the the, the nature of the purchases are traceable on the ledger so like if you if a a certain wallet buys the crypto and then it's like the same owner of that wallet or the the funds that went from that wallet go to through a bunch of different intermediaries to a new wallet you can still see where all the funds go through so i think it's harder to do that type of stuff now that people are aware of it i think Mm -hmm. earlier in the sort of wild wild west people were just like being duped into thinking maybe some of this artificial pump and dump stuff was real. But I think most people at this stage in the game, if you're thinking about ponying up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for a a pointer to a JPEG, you're not going to be so gullible as to say, Oh, I'm just going to buy this thing and not look at the provenance. I mean, that's the one benefit of fine art, a fine art market that is, entirely on the blockchain is that provenance is completely detectable the fine art market itself is like horrifically unregulated un- underregulated un- exactly yeah. i mean there's there's essentially it's it's very credible people have talked about the prices in the fine art market are insanely influenced by the fact that the provenance of the funds to buy art and you can move it as a vehicle of value, transfer it across borders, sell it and so forth. There are, I mean, the only thing that made sense in that, in my opinion, idiotic tenant movie was that there are these free ports that exist to do things like this. Um, and if we want to talk about tenant, I, that one, Oh my God. Right. (laughs) I, I was talking to Jeremy and he was like, I enjoyed it. And I was like, Jeremy, the, the, the movie depicts strategic interactions. Let me ask you this. How would two people going in different directions in time play a game of chess? 
That's a strategic interaction. Start thinking about it for a second, and it falls apart very quickly. It doesn't actually make yeah, any sense. Of all of the, of all of his previous ones, like you know, uh, even going back to yeah, Memento, yeah. like they all had like some level where you're like, okay, I get it. Uh, he can't remember. Oh, yeah. oh I get it. Yeah. You know, there's a temporal distortion when you travel faster than speed yeah. or close to the speed of light. Oh, I get it. You. Even Inception, it's like, okay, you're in a dream. It's dreams. It's yeah. dreams. Yeah. Okay, dreams are something we all understand. But, like, all time travel movies are, you have to at least at some level turn your brain off because it doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Inherent, inherent, like, I love Back to the Future, but, but it none sense. of that yeah. can, can make any sense. But this one was, like, so specific about, like... <laughs> it's everywhere. Usually you can hold your nose for the not making sense stuff. This one, the not making sense stuff is, like, literally bullets coming out of walls, and you're like, where'd the bullet come from? And it's like, don't ask that question. You know, it's like, yeah. literally, yeah. it's like, wait, but... It, oh, my God. So, anyway, so, but it, they do have this free port. So, back to sure. ApeCoin. Ape um, you have... Okay, so what you're saying... So, you, yeah, so bring me in. The... the the, the the thing that I think is interesting about ApeCoin, outside of like rehashing the old territory of what are NFTs and yeah, what's the yeah, value, yeah. is that now they're taking NFT, the, the, the valuation that was generated from all of the purchases of these ApeCoins was like, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion dollars at the end with that collection. Yeah. So an investor decided, I'm just going to buy all of the ApeCoins and the, and the rights to those ApeCoins uh, not all the eight coins, uh, sorry, not the coins, the NFTs. The NFTs. Yeah. I'm going to buy the rights to the NFTs and then use that as a collateral, so to speak, to generate a token called ApeCoin, yeah. which then uh, is regulated by a DAO um, in order for people to generate what they call a utility token something that actually does something as opposed to a collectible like an NFT. Okay. Um, so it's interesting because now you have people, this is like the ultimate dream is that you take a bunch of money, uh, buy a bunch of collectibles, and but then figure out a way to use that as collateral to actually form a real business. So like now you're not just in uh, the fine art market where you're using fine art to launder your money, but you're using, you're using fine art to then collateralize an ongoing concern, a business, um, which, which only, is very interesting. Which is, but it's to me, it's interesting if those assets could not have collateralized a business through other means, which essentially implies they're tied up somewhere somehow that they wouldn't. I mean, if they're sitting as U.S. dollars in a bank account, those could collateralize a business too. Maybe it appreciates something like this, but you can absolutely do it. So it it it's it's sort of taking money. From a somehow less legitimate uh, place and legitimizing it is what I'm hearing. Because the money can collateralize a business, whether it collateralizes it through NFTs or through a Bank of America statement, I find that equally uninteresting. But if it's taking money that could not have collateralized a business, like Bitcoin holdings um, held overseas, and then it can, that is. So where do you see the interesting part here? Well, I think I think there's a couple interesting angles here. One is that you have, uh, like you said, you sort of have a, 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 this is a legal way to sort of yeah. take your money and money launder it and then 
actually look like a very clean investor in yes. Yes. a utility token yeah. that now has the ability for people to play to earn in a game, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so now you look you look like um, Andy Dufresne at the, you know you sure. you you went through a, a mile long uh, yeah. tunnel of shit yeah. and now you're you're clean on the other end. So that's great, except the little detail of the SEC and the regulators, because they're going to see this and say, you just speculatively pumped up this asset over a frenzy. And now, you know, you recognize that you might see that asset drop because a lot of these NFTs have gone, you know, the vast majority of NFTs through their pump and dumps cycles go down to very low, like percentage points of their original value. Exactly. So, I think, you know, a few of them will hold their value and Bored Ape might be one of the few that has some ability to hold the value. But there's at some point a ceiling to saying, OK, how much how many more buyers are there going to be to. Right. And how much what can we do with this? Right. Like if there's now no I underlying just, utility. You, right. You, it's either a next person in line or end of the road. And, right. And, and, and unless there's a, and. And that's the same thing with currency. It's just currency. There's usually a utility to it. That is, say, other people value or it. fine art. It's like dead. De- it's it's very dead money, right? Yeah. Like it's not yeah. doing anything. It's not yeah. productive. So in that sense, I'm actually pro this approach in the sense that let's try to get some of this dead money to actually create new real businesses with ongoing concerns that may or may not succeed based on whether people play the game or use the the application, right? Um, in that sense, I'm very pro doing this because you're taking what traditionally was a way for very rich people to just park dead money and get outside of the tax regimes of, of their countries and figuring out a way to actually make it where people are forced to reinvest that money some way. Right. But you can also, I mean, you can do to that. To take on also, some risk. Right. But you can also do that with a wealth tax on these assets, right? There's other ways to like... you what. The inefficiency you're saying is that there's parked assets that could add, that could essentially be expansionary economic forces, and those are parked assets. They are parked assets, and I think that what with NFTs, people are very keenly aware that they may be sitting on a bubble, right? When you own a Picasso, you're not really that concerned that that asset is going to deflate very rapidly. But if you own an, an ape, yeah. <laughs> and you're thinking about... Uh, what does 2035 look like for this ape? You're like, uh, this is this. We need to figure out a way to get something out of that. I I would rather take the risk of deploying that to like some re- other real, you know, business risk to make money than just sit on it. Well, this is like the idea that like, in I mean, it's a little bit like the idea of why economists fear deflation and like inflation, small amounts, is that deflation creates a weight incentive things will get cheaper over time i will wait inflation right. creates a buy incentive and what you're saying this creates like almost a hyper growth incentive that it's either gonna be a big successful uh economy where this valueless thing gains value because of its will it sort of because of its value almost as a currency or it becomes worthless because its value is a collective in nature. If it intrinsic value is so low, the minute other people stop valuing it is the minute. Whereas Picasso, the intrinsic value is just simply there. It, other people value it, but ultimately there's enough people out there that says, I don't care what other anyone else values it. I'll put it on my wall in my mansion and I value it at, at the, the backstop is much lower. So I think you make an interesting point on the 
time scale by which these uh, ideas are seeing sort of the boom bust maintain cycle, which is super fascinating versus other ideas. But I'm still what I think the wild card here is like governments control currency because printing money may you control the printing press. Inflation is effectively a tax on everybody. That's why right. that's why there's going to be hyperinflation in Russia because they won't be able to meet their obligations. So they'll print money, which means everyone that holds rubles will have lower valued stuff. It's just a tax. Governments historically, this is the one reason nation states can't go broke because they right. control the printing press. They can default on their foreign debt. They can do lots of things, but they on their domestic debt, they control it. So there's always to me in the back of my head, whatever lens it is, if you're tr- designing something that becomes currency-like and you succeed, some government agency is going to swoop in and say, no, thank you. And I think the shoe will drop in the 2020s. But we have to, I know we're almost out of time. I want to get to one thing. Screw up of the week. You yeah. called it out in okay. the chat. Fill me in. Kyrie Irving allowed to play in Madison Square Garden, but workers, and he's unvaccinated, but, right. but rank-and-file workers in Madison Square Garden are not. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the the decree from Adams. Who up to so basically this background? Um, there was a private sector mandate in New York right. that all people, all private sector employees needed to be vaccinated. Uh, that being people who worked in Masking Square yep. Garden um, or in the Brooklyn Nets uh, facility. I forgot what it's called. Um, they keep changing the names, but yeah, Barclays. Barclays I think Center, Barclays. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they have to be vaccinated. So the person selling the at the concession stands, yep. all the other uh, labor there have to be vaccinated. But Adams has made a carve-out, a special carve-out, only for athletes and performers. Screw up. So everybody has to get vaccinated except Kyrie Irving and uh, the baseball players, the Mets players, and all the others who no. are unvaccinated. All right, that's a screw-up because... That's just straight up nonsense. Either set up policies that everyone can do, like testing policies, or just keep your vaccination policies, or tell Kyrie, with all due respect to the Uncle Drew movie, you can't play. You know, right. <laughs> like that's it. Yeah. All right. I, I I think this is the ultimate hypocrisy, and yeah, he he completely earns it. And he was also very coy in that Kyrie said he had an inside line to Eric Adams. He has said, "Don't worry, guys, I'll I'll be playing." <laughs> And Adams was very coy and saying, you know, I'm not looking at one guy. I'm looking at a city yeah. of nine million. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the rule comes out. Oh, yeah. my guy. He does. My guy gets the carve out. I feel like Adams is obviously the mayor of New York for people out there. He has yeah. appointed a number of family members to prominent positions. I don't think he's had the cleanest run in terms of an anti-corruption perspective. And so no. disappointing. But to prove, you know, look, we're throwing up a, a Democrat on this group of the week, maybe the first time. Um, yeah. You know, it can happen. <laughs> there you go. Corruption <laughs> out there. Nathan, thank you for your time today. Uh, for all the listeners that last week chopped up, uh, appreciate that. Love that we can sub some someone in. Hopefully next week maybe we do it, the, the Haters Ball edition with Jeremy back in the mix. I think he was doing a lot of work stuff today. If you're on a podcast platform, remember to subscribe. If you're on YouTube, hit subscribe, like. Um, share it with your friends and until our next occasion we thank you for listening any last words you nothing no just left in that h town all right i'll see you guys later all right chop it out <laughs>